Now, if you've got your Bibles, grab them. Um, you can go ahead and turn to John 15. New sermon series for the next four weeks leading up to Easter. The name of the series is Abide. You can think live, dwell. The name of today's message is The Disciples and Jesus. We're going to focus on these guys, these disciples, over the next four weeks. Pretty incredible, you know, these guys that were hand-selected by Jesus, got to experience Him and know Him better than anyone. Wouldn't that be amazing just to spend three years on earth with Jesus, listening to Him talk, walking with Him? Who were these guys, these disciples? They were Jewish people. They were Israelites. They were part of the children of God that had been selected way back in Genesis with the man named Abraham. Okay? They knew the Old Testament. They, like their mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and great, 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 they had been waiting for this Messiah to come. They knew the prophecies of the suffering serpent in Isaiah 53. They knew the law, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. They knew in Deuteronomy where it said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And for generation after generation after generation, they had been waiting. They had been waiting for this Messiah. That's who these disciples were. They were good Jewish guys trying to do all the right things, trying to follow the law, fishermen, some of them. Can you imagine waiting that long for God to fulfill a promise? You know, can you imagine waiting for hearing all the stories passed down from your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and that they had seen all these incredible things and that one day God was going to send another who they would listen to, who would rescue them. It was the summer of 1999. I was working my first camp for centrifuge camps and I was on a traveling team because I was young. I was 21 and they thought, well, he can probably deal with the fact that every other week he'd be in a different location. Uh, and there was this time where we had to drive from Wisconsin to North Carolina. So we took a lot of days in between. And I remember having to sleep on the floor in someone's home in New York somewhere in the middle of the summer. And in New York, they don't have air conditioner in a lot of homes. And it was hot that summer. And I just remember being miserable. So maybe that's why I was awake. But I tend to think now that God was wanting to speak to me that night. And I don't know if you've ever had these conversations with God where it feels like it's an out loud conversation. It's so, it's so clear. You know, I think I would ask a question and immediately there would be an answer in your spirit, you know, because the spirit's talking to you. And I just remember that night laying there on the floor and feeling like God said to me when I was 21 years old that he would one day set us aside to plant a church. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And I was young and thought, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, my dad was a pastor. In fact, he planted a church when I was about five years old. And I remember, I remember the responsibility of getting to be the offering kid and walk down the aisle with the offering plate, pass back and forth, and be really sure I didn't mess up and miss an aisle, okay? And I thought, this is really good news. You know, I could see how maybe God might want to do that. And so at the end of that summer, I went home and, and in fact, I took my first job at a church in ministry. And it was at a church, it was a little country church in Louisville, Texas, and there was like 70 years old church. Been there forever, and 
their ways were set. They didn't want my ideas or opinions. You know, they just wanted me to do what they wanted me to do with youth and music. And so I worked for there for a little bit, and then I did some other things. And then the next church that God called me to be on staff at was First Baptist Church, Leesburg, Florida. It was over 100 years old. And after a few years, I started thinking, God, what was all this church plant stuff you're talking about? You know, I mean, everywhere you got me is they've been settled. They don't need my opinion. They won't know what they don't want to know what I think. They just want me to do the thing. And so I left First Baptist Leesburg and I got a job at a church in Nashville. And that church was only three years old. And they met in a movie theater. You know, we had a set up and tear down every week. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, I mean, they they'd already started. They were kind of settled in, but maybe this is what God was talking about. And then a little over a year later. Sidney calls me one day. We were keeping up because we worked together at First Leesburg. In fact, he's the reason I had left Texas to come to Florida. So I knew him, I loved him, I trusted him. And he says this to me on the phone sometime in March that year of 2007. I think, you know how Sidney is, I think maybe God wants us to plant a church. And let me tell you, as clear as that middle of the night in the summer of 99, God it was like he put a gentle hand on me and just goes, now, this is what I was talking about. And I knew. So I said, okay, I'm in. He said, well, you know, we need to think about it. Talk. No, I said, I know. We're, I'm pretty sure this is what God wants us to do. So the next morning I went into my pastor's office and I resigned and I said, I'm going to go back to Florida to plant a church. And I called that realtor who had helped me buy that house a little over a year before and I said, I need you to sell my house. And I called Sid back and I said, all right, I resigned and put my house up for sale. He said, what? I said, what do you mean, What? I said, this is what you said yesterday we're supposed to be doing. And God says, this is what we're supposed to do. So don't back out on me now. I don't have a job. <laughs> so we left and we, when we came back. And uh, it had been eight years since I had felt God say that to me. And a lot of wonder. Well, can you imagine waiting generations for a promise? Generations? And then these guys are there on the water one day, and by the shore, this guy named Jesus shows up, and he goes, hey, leave everything on the ground, lay your life behind, and come and follow me. And the Holy Spirit puts his hand on their shoulders real gently and goes, now, this is it. You know that had to have happened, because why else would they have left everything for some stranger on the shore? In fact, we know in the book of John, they immediately left to go find some of their close people, some of their brothers and cousins, and said, hey, we found the Messiah. So even though they didn't understand everything Jesus taught them for three years, somehow on that first day, they knew this was it. And so this, this group of disciples, then they get to follow Jesus for three years. He, he heals people. He raises people from the dead. He teaches with authority that they've never experienced before. And for three years, they are just on a high of all that he's doing. They're willing to follow him anywhere. And then at the end of his time on earth, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And he's trying to prepare them to say, hey... This isn't the end. In fact, it's just the beginning. I'm going to use you guys to start my church. And so he was trying to prepare them. Hey, there's some things going to happen. And they didn't understand. The disciples never understood, I feel like. And he's saying, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're saying, what are you talking about? But he wanted them to know that when all of this happened that weekend, that it wasn't the end. He was going to tell them to abide in him, to abide in one another, to, uh, to leave the world and to abide in his Holy Spirit when he sends it. And so sometime after Judas had left that night, remember the last night they were all together and they have the first Lord's Supper. They, they celebrate Passover together. 
And Judas leaves and he goes on to set in motion the things that would take place in order for him to betray Jesus. And then sometime after he left, Jesus gives this long discourse. Sometime between the time Judas left and the time they started praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's what we're going to read over the next four weeks. We're going to look at this, this kind of this last message that Jesus gives his disciples before his death. So turn with me to John 15, okay? Verse 1. He's already in the middle of this conversation. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice when we read the Bible, anything that just keeps constantly coming back, you know, that repetition, that should be important to you. We're going to see the word abide and the word fruit a lot in these 11 verses. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. As we open it today, we, we admit that it is our authority, that it is true. I pray that as we read it, it would be clear to us and that your spirit would apply it to our lives powerfully, Father. Thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. Jesus' metaphor here, this allegory of the vine and vineyard, this, there's a connection to the Old Testament. And I think his disciples, like I said, they knew the Old Testament. They might have picked up on it. In fact, when, in the Old Testament, whenever there's talk of the vine and this vineyard, it's Israel, the people of God who are the vine. But they're the vine that does not produce fruit because of their disobedience to God the Father. And the first thing here, Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's saying, I am the true child of God who does produce good fruit because of my obedience to the Father. I am the true vine. And he says, this is what it looks like to abide in me, to live in me, to dwell in me and me and you. And so today I want us to look at three things that this passage shows us what it looks like to abide in Christ. Because you may be wondering, hopefully you are wondering, do I abide in Christ? Am I producing good fruit? Am I a branch that needs to be pruned to produce good, more good fruit? Or am I a branch that is not producing good fruit that is in danger of being cut off. Look at verse 4. The first one is this, dependence on Christ. Abiding in Christ looks like dependence on him. Verse 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot 
bear fruit by itself. It does not say the branch sometimes bears fruit by itself. It's laying on the ground. No, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's one of the most familiar statements in the Bible for Christians, isn't it? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's also one of the most forgotten statements by Christians, isn't it? Because how often do we, in our own power and our strength and our giftedness, set out to accomplish things without depending on Him? We set our goals and we set, this is what we want to accomplish. And we think, well, because I know this or I have this experience or because I'm gifted in this way, this will be successful. And we forget to even consider that we should be depending on him because apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. That's, that's really clear. It's really clear. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He's trying to be making sure that we don't get our... Um, our, our, what we, the part that we play, our role, we don't want to get that mixed up. I am the vine, you are the branches. See, sometimes I think we are the vine and he's just one of these branches on us. You know, I'm the vine and this is my family branch. I'm the vine, this is my workplace branch. I'm the vine, this is my religious or Jesus branch. No, no, no. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branch. Everything that comes out of you is because you get it from me. Because I am the life source. Are you with me? I was recently rereading the story of Samson. It was one of my favorite stories. In fact, Bryson goes, oh, that's my favorite story. Because if you remember in Sunday school, Samson was this great, big, strong guy with wonderful hair, which I wish I still had. And he accomplished all these great, cool things. But the story of Samson isn't about Samson. The story of Samson is about the spirit of the Lord. Because if you go back and read it, right before Samson did something neat, it says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And then Samson did something neat. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Samson did something really great. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He found the jawbone of a donkey and he whooped a whole bunch of people. He did not know the Spirit of the Lord had left him. And he was bound by his girlfriend, taken away into custody by the Philistines and basically led to his death. And it wasn't until the Spirit of the Lord came upon him again that he was able to pull the building down on himself and all the Philistines. The story of Samson is about the Spirit of the Lord and that without the Spirit of the Lord, you can do nothing, even if you are a really good-looking, with good hair, strong fella. You can accomplish nothing. You know, social media will let you forget nothing these days. You know, the moment you wake up and look at it, it tells you what happened last year or two years ago or whatever it is. And five years ago was the beginning of 2016. And at the very end of 2015, I sat down, took a couple of days, and I wrote down all the goals that I wanted to accomplish for 2016. How I was going to get there, the things I was going to do, how I was going to spend time in God's Word and get up really early and crush it every day in the journal and in prayer and in the Bible. How I was going to be a better husband and father and pastor. How I was going to take care of my body and eat right and all of these things. And let me tell you, three weeks into January, I was killing it. I was killing it so much that I started looking around for other things that I could accomplish. And I thought, I've never run a marathon. And so I said, let's add it. Started looking for marathons that were available about four months down the road. I found one, paid for it, bought my plane ticket to go there to do it, and even booked my hotel. And three weeks into my marathon training, 
I was ahead of that schedule. And then on February 20th of 2016, some poor guy passes out at the wheel in his Escalade, comes up onto the golf cart path where I was doing my run, runs into a golf cart, kills both of those ladies, pushes it into me, throws me 60 feet off the cart path, and there strong Brian is lying naked as the EMT guy cuts my clothes off to figure out what all's wrong with me while I'm unconscious. It wasn't funny. <laughs> it's a lot easier to tell that story five years later. Well, if you were here, you remember. The next six months were hard on me. I hurt, and when your body hurts, your mind hurts, you don't feel like doing anything, especially accomplishing all the goals that you set out for yourself to do. And it took me a while, but I remember there was a morning I woke up in August, six months later, and I was like, that is enough. Let's quit the pouting and whining. You need to get up and start going back to normal life again. And so I grabbed my Bible and my journal. And that year I had bought a journal that had dates on it. So that way if I miss a day, no worries. I'll just go to the next day and that will keep me focused. So if I miss Monday, do Tuesday. I wasn't trying to be legalistic about it. I just wanted to be, you know, in the Word and in prayer. And so I began to try to turn my journal to August, whatever that day was, August 16, I think. And I'm just seeing empty page after empty page for six months. And it wasn't that God was saying, you have been doing your quiet time. It was that God said, you know what all those pages represent? They represent nothing. The nothing that you can do without me. And I said, oh. You know, I wish I could have learned that lesson in a little bit less painful manner. But, but God said, no matter who you are, no matter how good your intentions are, you can do nothing without me. And I had forgotten when I started out 2016 that all of these things would be accomplished only if my dependence was on Christ, not on myself or my strength or my giftedness or anything like that. So you might ask, well, how do we make sure we're depending on Christ? And I'm going to give you three things. You can write these down really fast. They will not be on the screen. The first one is this. You can pray before you make a decision. Every decision. I mean, how often do we end up praying at the end of all of our other options that we tried first? And before you make the decision, pray. Pray before making every decision. The second thing is this. Make your decisions based on the standards in God's Word. Now let me say, this is going to become increasingly more difficult as the world and culture around you tells you that God's Word is irrelevant. And you are going to decide often, is what I'm deciding right now, is that standard in the Bible, is it still relevant or not? Can I please say to you today that the flowers of the field will fade away, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Forever. His word is never irrelevant. His word never changes. And what God sets as the standard is the standard. And so when you make your decisions and you pray about them, then base those decisions on the standards in God's word. The third and final thing is this. Trust God with the results. After you've done those two things, trust him. Don't try to manipulate things in the world and in your life to get the thing that you think you deserve or the result you think needs to happen. Trust him with it. When our kids were real little, we would say, do your best. Let God take care of the rest. Right? I mean... Do the things that we are supposed to do to abide in him and let him take care of the results. Abiding in Christ means dependence on him, relying on him, trusting in him. The second thing is this. Abiding in Christ means communion with Christ. 
communion with Christ. Look at verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What does communion with Christ look like? It looks like his words abiding in us. It looks like his words living and dwelling in us. Getting to know God more doesn't just happen overnight, okay? You don't trust in Jesus as your Savior, get baptized, and all of a sudden you know him the way someone who's walked with him for the last 40 years knows him. It takes time. It takes time. My relationship with Brooke is one that began when I was 16 years old. I know her better today than I did when I was 16. Just because I started knowing her then doesn't mean I knew her the way I know her now. That would make no sense. And in the same way, we had to put forth effort to get to know God better. Paul had known Christ for many years. This was the guy that wrote the New Testament pretty much. And he says this to the letter to the Philippians. He says, his main passion was to know Christ more. Can you imagine Paul saying the main thing he really wants in life is to know Christ more? If he wants to know Christ more... I need to know Christ more. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Nor is getting to know Christ better an automatic process. Just because you say yes to Jesus and get baptized, he doesn't just kind of, you know, all of a sudden you know everything about God. It doesn't happen automatically. There's a part that we play in this. It takes real effort. And now you say, well, wait a minute. Is effort contrary to grace? No. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Does that make sense? Grace is opposed to earning your salvation. Grace is not opposed to effort. Effort is a vital part of how grace operates in our sanctification. Effort is a, is a role that is played in us becoming more like him. Okay? Now, yes, the Holy Spirit does the work, but we got we to gotta be the person that's willing to allow him to work through us. This is what Paul continued to say there in Philippians chapter 3. He says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that takes effort, forgetting, straining, that takes effort, forward to what lies ahead, I press on. These are action words. These are verbs. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this in a sense. Church family, a person is as close to God as he or she really wants to be. Can I say that again? A person is as close to God as he or she really wants to be. We know that when we feel far away from God, it's not because God has turned his back and walked away from us. God is always there waiting for us to turn our face back toward him and come home. If we feel far away from God, it's because we've not really wanted to know him at that time. But this isn't just Paul who urges us to press on. God told Israel in Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. Jesus told his disciples, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. In each case, those who seek are the ones who find. And those who don't seek, they don't find. So how do we press on toward communion with Christ? How do we get his words to abide in us? He offers everything we need to grow into a deeper relationship with him. But we have to embrace it. We have to drink the milk that he gives. 
That's what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What is the spiritual milk we should long for? I think it's pretty obvious that Peter is talking about the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures. Just as babies need milk to grow up physically, believers need spiritual milk to grow up spiritually. It seems very likely that Peter is talking about these scriptures. Communication is essential for knowing anyone. You have to communicate to get to know people. And God has chosen primarily to communicate with his people through his written word. Through his written word. These are God-breathed words that the Holy Spirit inspired holy men to write down. Now, these words that, that were written, the Holy Spirit, he illuminates them into our minds so that we can understand them. And he empowers us to know them. The scriptures are our only reliable source of knowledge about who God is, what he's like, what his will is, what his plans are, what he's done in the past, what he's going to do in the future, how we can love him and serve him. It's what life is all about. It's how we know all the promises that he's given us how he's going to fulfill his promises. One theologian said this about the Bible, about the scriptures. He said, they are also God's chief instrument for building our faith in him. They are the chief instrument for building our faith in him. We have stronger faith the more we know about him. He says, the scriptures are God's ultimate and final authority for what we are to believe and how we are to behave. They are our lifeline in this fallen world. Do you look at the Bible like that? Is God's word your lifeline in a fallen world? Or do you look to other things? You know, I love sports. I love football. And at the beginning of every season, whether it's NFL or college, there will be a lot of people talk about which teams are going to be good and which teams are going to be bad. And if you listen to enough sports talk radio, at some point you will hear someone talk about the reason they like a team is because they've got the same quarterback, the same offensive coordinator, and the same head coach as they had last year. And because of all of that consistency, knowing the playbook, knowing the plan, that team is going to be good. And so we talk about quarterbacks that are the first ones in, the first ones out. They've always got their head in the playbook because if they know the playbook, then they know how to handle any situation when they're on the field. Okay, are you with me? Christians, the Bible is your playbook. Unless we know it and have our head in it and learn it and have God's word abiding in us, we don't know what to do when we're out there on the field. So what's your plan for knowing the Bible? That would be a question for us. How much time each day do you spend communing with Christ? You know, I hope you're not just a one verse a day kind of Christian. I want you to take chunks of scripture and read it and, and understand it. And, and write in your Bible and ask God questions about it that you don't understand and, and have the Spirit explain it to us so that we can be the kinds of team members that, that go out and produce good fruit because we know the plan, we know the playbook. Abiding in Christ means communing with Christ and His Word. Number three is this. Abiding in Christ means obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Well, how do we do that? He says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
Abiding in Christ means being obedient to Him and His Word. This is how we prove to be disciples, and it brings God glory when we do it. And yes, it's becoming more and more difficult because everyone around us wants to say, well, yeah, that's not the way we should do things anymore. So how do we go about being in our culture and yet living according to His Word? We don't just spend time getting to know the Bible and then go out and live however we want in the moment. We have to obey it. If we go back to the whole football analogy with our quarterback, if the quarterback spends every minute in the playbook, but then when he gets on the field, he abandons the plan and does whatever he wants to do, that quarterback will not have a job for long, will he? No. It doesn't matter how well he knew the playbook if he cannot go out and implement it. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. 1 John 2, 17 says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Church family, listen here. Selected obedience is not obedience. Is convenience. Selected obedience is not obedience. It's convenience. When you take something from God's word that you like and you go, ooh, I like that, I'm going to stand on that, throw that on Facebook. But then you find something else in the Bible and you go, oh, I'm not sure God really meant that for 2021. We've got to leave that part out. That's not obedience. That's convenience. And what you've done for yourself is torn out parts of God's word and made your own Bible for yourself. And the God you're following is not the eternal, unchanging creator God. It's a God of your own making. And you are in danger of being a branch that is cut off because of your disobedience to him. Selected obedience is not obedience at all. It is merely convenience. So abiding in Christ looks like this. It looks like dependence on Christ. Communion with Christ. And obedience to Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Here's what I want you to know as we close. The branch gets everything it needs from the vine. If a branch is cut off and falls on the ground, it no longer has its life source. It does not get anything else it needs. While it is connected to the vine, everything it needs comes from the vine. When we are not fully satisfied in Christ, what do we do? We go looking outside of Him for things that we need and want. Have you ever done that? I have. We look for peace somewhere else. We look for hope somewhere else. We look for a future somewhere else. We look for satisfaction somewhere else. You know what happens? We end up feeling empty. We end up not being Christians who produce fruit because we're not abiding in the true vine. And we are in danger of being a branch that is going to be cut off. We have to get everything that we want and need from the true vine. We have to be completely satisfied in him. Our legacy is not our future. Jesus is our future. Our net worth is not our hope. Jesus is our hope. 
He takes away our worries and our burdens and he replaces them with peace. Nothing else in the world will do that. He is the anchor for our soul. Can we pray? And then I want us to sing a song as we leave. Father, you alone are God. You are our hope, our future, our peace. You are our anchor. And we trust in you. Father, teach us how to depend on you, to commune with you, to obey you in your word. Father, we want to abide in you and you alone because you are our life source. Making us to be the men and women that produce good fruit and will go out into a world living in darkness that does not know you and bring hope to that place. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the cross of Jesus. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.